Welcome to the Rock's Back Pages podcast. I'm Barney Hoskins. And as usual, I'm joined by my co-hosts, Mark Pringle. Hi, Barney. And Jasper Mearson Bowie. Hello, Barney. And today we are thrilled to have David Sigerson join us from New York City. Hi, David. How's tricks? Tricks are tricky. They're good. They're fine. They're appropriately <laughs> tricky. It's the day before <laughs> Thanksgiving here, so things are all a bit of flutter, but in a good way. Well, happy Thanksgiving when it arrives. Thank you. Um, we're going to be talking in this episode about disco and David Bowie a little bit and a delightful audio interview with Bootsy Collins. But first, David, we're going to go back to the start of your story. I mean, I was first aware of you as one of the best writers on 70s black music. But before that, you were to cite that 1938 movie, you were a Yank at Oxford. So my question is, what did you study there and how did that lead you to write for the brilliant magazine Black Music? Mm, well, it was actually, I was at school in London. I came over when I was 13. Uh. My parents decided to absquatulate from a very nasty New York and found that they could do so. So I was going to school at St. Paul's. Ah, smart. Not Westminster for a change. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, because in well, this podcast, we, we we really like to stick to the Westminster and Oxford I route. Think you, I think that that's really a good crowd builder for you. So <laughs> I uh, was at school, and I was writing songs and enlisting various people, like the school guitar teacher, to help me demo them and, and do things with them. And when I was 16, and I guess just the year after O-Levels, I got a record deal and I was reading all these papers very religiously. Fortunately, the record, which was on a sub-label of Phonogram, never came out to humiliate me. <laughs> they, lost, they lost their deal in the middle, but it, it, it definitely the hook was in. And I was reading all these papers, and particularly black music, because that was my love. And I used to go to, down to Contempo Records every Saturday and hear them play the 45s and have a little pile you know, for my allowance. And reading blues and soul as well, though I know reading is the correct verb. And it just frustrated me because they would talk a lot about burbling keyboards or chugging synths, or they didn't actually have any idea what they were talking about. So, <laughs> wait, I'm going to turn my mail off. Did you hear that little thing go ding? Probably no, did. No, oh, no. that's good. We well, heard I, a chugging synth, but, but we I didn't, did, yeah. <laughs> so, it's like these things have names. I mean, you might be talking about a Fender Rhodes, you might be talking about a Wurlitzer electric piano you might be talking about a clavinet so i said would you like a piece explaining what these things are giving examples of records that we're all familiar with in our little world where you could hear them and tony cummings no it was before tony was a writer there it was jeff i think was the editor said yeah sure so i wrote this piece on spec and they liked it and ran it and so i was at age 16 doing that and doing it all more and more and more and a lot and loving to do it. So that was my start in, in journalism. And Oxford happened, university happened along with music. It was sort of the deal like you can pursue this, but not if you don't go get your education. So it was wow. always a, a deal with my parents, do what you want, but don't don't rock that boat. And I'm, I never would have. I mean, it was way too much fun. It was all way too much fun. But um, <laughs> so that's what happened. So from age 16... I was writing stuff and all through Oxford for black music and later a bunch of other places. But I was, I was probably writing between eight and 15,000 words a month. Gosh. 
of just like stuff, which was so fun. And I got the disco section and Tony Cummings, who was a great soul, is a great soul and was a wonderful mentor to me and a lot of other people kept giving me more and more stuff to do. So it was fantastic. Getting Tony Cummings on board Brock's Back Pages is absolutely fantastic. I sort of tracked him down because he runs now a sort of religious, a gospel I site. heard that, yeah. And uh, I just sent, I sent an email saying, are you the Tony Cummings who wrote for Black Music? And he said, yes, and yes, I'd like to be on board. What a great writer, terrific writer. Great writer, great mentor. And if you're, um, since you're in touch with him, like, give him my email. Please, like, I'd love to talk sure. to him, see him next time I'm over there. What just, God, what a cool soul. Yeah, yeah. What did you study at Oxford in tandem with writing for Black Music? History. It was history or English, and I figure, well, I'll read those books anyway. <laughs> which was which was largely untrue. George Eliot and I have never really got along, but um, <laughs> well, not in the way that you got along with BT Express or Earth, Wind, and or, Fire or L'Autrement, right? And um, uh, exactly, or Robert Musil, my my all time hero. Oh yes, the man without qualities. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I've probably just given away like the key to every one of my online passwords with that statement. In any case, um, <laughs> do you want to do you want to just take a break and just go and change all of those now? No. <laughs> That's all right. I don't have anything worth uh, this isn't stealing, live, fortunately. So that's okay. Anyhow, yeah. So I read history, and it was great fun, and I loved that. I loved doing that, and I was coming into town when I was nineteen. Another fantastic mentor still dear friend richard williams yes. who was editing time out made me the disco editor of time out i don't know if you guys are even aware of that phase because i don't know if there's any clips of that well i just really want to ask you how you got you know i associate you so strongly with disco because there weren't many people writing about disco and there certainly weren't many people writing well about disco what got, i mean because the first of the pieces that we're going to feature this week on the homepage is your interview with tom moulton the king of like the 12 inch disco mix which i'm kind of guessing you must have done in kind of december 75 you know really before everybody was talking about disco so what was your kind of window into the disco phenomenon I move very quickly between ages, I guess, 11 and 15 from a pretty normal Stones, Beatles, Dylan musical youth through a friend who was a, a blues guitar player into Little Walter and blues and older black music, not leaving anything behind along the way, continuing to love it all, to... Really, I guess, to Sly and the Family Stone was for me, I mean, he's still just, a, you know, a god to me. And I uh -huh. always thought if I had a son, this was until Sylvester Stallone came along, I would definitely name him Sylvester. <laughs> but Stallone did come along and I had daughters, so that didn't happen. But um, Sly, Sly was just and is just huge for me. I mean, mm, Sly, yeah. Miles Davis, probably, and the Stones are probably my three, you know, my, my godhead. Particularly, there's a riot going on. My all-time favorite record, I think it's that next on Main Street. It just totally blew me away. And 
So I liked going out to clubs. I liked to dance a lot. I liked everything about all of it. And so I didn't see that music. So it was sort of, I got into it before it was maligned by anybody. Yeah, I got yeah. into it. I mean, I remember spending a summer in Nice when I was 15. God bless my parents. And I thought they were overbearing at the time alone <laughs> going to going to clubs every night and dancing to records like Soul Mikasa by Manu Dabanga. Yeah, yeah. And so I saw it as a continuum. I mean, there was a lot of crap disco. I mean, there's a lot of crap country. Those two genres produced more dross as a proportion than many others. Well, and rock and roll. And I guess we can name them all now. But <laughs> um, but the good stuff was really good and didn't need to be lost. And I think that sure. um, there were a number of people, Richard Williams being one of them, who understood that there was a real parallel between what Teo Macero was doing, editing long Miles Davis takes and creating sound stories out of that and what Tom Olton was doing or what Harvey Fuqua did with You Make Me Feel Mighty Real by Sylvester. So the music that moved me was the music which was moving. And sometimes I found it in unexpected places. I mean, I, uh, a friend and I keep a list of songs we want played at our like funerals and memorials and stuff. Because <laughs> you have to have a, a reliable keeper of these important things. Yes. And it might empty the room. Were there a room to empty? Remains to be seen how well I treat people. But <laughs> Cloud One, Atmosphere Strut, which was a Patrick Adams yeah, yeah. masterpiece, in my opinion, was as moving to me. I mean, it was, I mean, you know, the goal is to be dancing with tears in your eyes, I think, and maybe lust in your heart. But (laughs) that, to me, there was a continuum of stuff which was emotionally resonant and, you know, mysterious. I mean, I will, I will just talk for a moment now about Las Meninas by Velasquez. I mean, people have gone on for ages and ages. I'm like, what the fuck is happening in that picture? And you can spend a day at the Prado looking at it and go back the next day. And, you know, it's like a great mystery that you're just trying to figure out what is it and how it works. Well, atmosphere strut more easily than you make me feel mighty real because it's in the title, which doesn't make it any less great. But I don't understand the power of atmosphere strut for me. I don't know if it has it. I mean, in the bush by Patrick Adams does not have that power. In the Bush, to me, is trite and trivial, but, you know, it's effective for what it is. Mm-hmm. But Atmosphere Strut is a song I want played when I'm dead. <laughs> you know, that. for people to understand, you know, if they cared where I was coming from. And the fact that I still don't understand that, like many of the things which I love, my life partner included, is a big part of the power. Because it's nice that you can't figure it out. I mean, the friends that have died that I've had who I miss the most... I've realized are the ones that I never knew what they were going to say. And the ones who I did know what they were going to say, I don't love them any less, but I actually kind of have them with me because I could say, what would, what would they say at this point? And I could kind of hear it in my head, which was, which is, which is lovely. Mm -hmm. But I, I, you know, it's the ones we, that you don't understand that stay with you, fuck you up. It's 
very interesting that, you know, for you to be writing about disco, particularly in, when you were writing about it in the New Musical Express, which I'd say was a fairly anti-disco paper. Mm, I mean, I don't think I was never I was never in NME. Melody Maker and Sounds. But anyway, Cliff White in the interview we're going to play with, yeah. with Bootsy is very rude about disco. That that as a music, writer about black music, he was very resistant to disco. He saw it as a a lessening of what was great about funk basically and i feel sad when i re- hear him saying things like that because i mean i think barney and myself and definitely you david and, and jasper too are all passionate about disco absolutely yeah, you, you know we just don't see it as being some sort of alien thing which is ruining black music but that's a very widespread perception at the time yeah and and i think by people who didn't listen you can't tell people what to what to listen to or what to get mm-hmm. out of it i mean i hated Led Zeppelin because uh, <laughs> rugby, <laughs> rugby players who would barf on my shoes at a party before trying to punch me liked it. <laughs> it took me leaving England in 1978 to realize that they were one of the absolute greatest handful of bands that ever existed. But I judged them for their for their fans. Sure. And I think that people did that with disco and there's an awful, I mean, it states that there was a huge racist component to that. Yeah. But yeah. I, I, I do understand, and, and because there was so much dross in the genre, it's easy yeah. to show examples of things which are repetitive, insipid, stupid. I mean, I don't ask anyone to embrace the best disco in town by the Ritchie family. <laughs> no, you don't. Being, <laughs> being, being, you know, you know, young and in love, and still old and in love. That record and the way it strung together the quotes of all the hits, I thought was, you know, pretty great. But it wasn't great. It was not even good. But it was workable for me. Sol Mikasa is great. Yes. Sylvester, you make me feel yeah. mighty real. Is great. There is a long list of things which are great. And by the way, in use. The line between disco, which let's just say it's four on the floor kick drum, and funk, which is not a four on the floor kick drum. It's a sort of Jared Manley Hopkins sprung rhythm kick drum (laughs) with a lot of internal kick drum rhymes. There's a lineage there. I mean, Sly, you know, whether you think that Papa's got a brand new bag or Thank You For Letting Me Be Myself Again, you know, the original version, was the Mm. first actual funk record. I mean, I don't think you can go wrong with Thank You in terms of, I mean, it really fully sounds like funk. It's not a blues-based funk, but you can see the evolution. There was a whole, everything kind of went with funk from there. Mm -hmm. But it went straight to, well, not straight to, it went through Ohio Players, who I think are absolutely one of the greatest bands yeah, yeah. ever and diamond the drummer one of the absolute greatest drummers that's ever lived and by the mid-70s we've got george clinton working out that you could have something which had a lot of the really a lot of the dna of funk with a four on the floor kick drum sure. because all of p-funk was four on the floor kick drum so it does qualify as as disco it also qualifies as funk it qualifies yeah. more broadly as you know great black music yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly exactly you mentioned Atmosphere Strut, and when I first met you in late 1979, we were introduced by our mutual friend, the legendary Nicholas Rothwell. Well, he's a legend for us, isn't he? Two of the memories I have of that evening were you 
produced a copy of Off the Wall, which had not been released at that point, and said, Michael is going to be the biggest star on the planet after this record. And you gave me a, a spare copy of the Atmosphere Strut album, which Did I still I? have. Yeah, which I still have. Oh, yeah, wow. I wanted you to know that. And I fell in love with that record too. And the other thing you gave me was an intro to Richard Williams. I'm just going to read. I did I did an interview with you in 1984 for NME when your second album came out. And I'm just going to quote this. He said, I started off writing fairly technical pieces for black music and blues and soul, but soon realized there were enough people there to save Tyrone Davis from critical obscurity. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> um, when I began writing for more mass circulation papers, I realized I could start championing my heroes and try to give them some credibility in, in circles where they had none. My first real satisfaction was Richard Williams agreeing to an in-depth appreciation of hot chocolate, <laughs> which I love because I have in-depth appreciation of hot chocolate too. What a great artist he was, Errol. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yes. it was all. I mean, he had you know he had those great you know rack producers, Mickey Most, etc. But it was he wrote the songs. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. We have to talk about Chic because the the second major piece that we're featuring by you is an interview you did with Chic. I mean, you you reviewed. I got a little confused because you did a review of their show at Hammersmith Odeon, and it suddenly made me think, did they play an earlier show at Hammersmith before the legendary one that I saw? And, and I think the answer must be yes. Your, your review is like February 79, or at least according to Rock's Back Pages. But I don't, I, my recollection, it was October 79. Anyway, it doesn't matter. You did a great interview with Bernard, mainly with Bernard, which is fascinating. Um, just like your interview with Tom Moulton is fascinating. And so just in the, the Prince, sorry, the Prince, we'll come on to Prince in a second. In, in the Chic piece, they're just so interesting about how, um, you know, they, they, they want to position, they want to compete with like Kiss and the Rolling Stones, you know, and their view, because they're such super smart guys, was that no, like, certainly no disco act, but no black act had said, you know what, we want to be on a level with, you know, Led Zeppelin or whoever it is. So they're really interesting in that. And Bernard talking about his bass playing, there's this lovely story. Sometimes I feel I've done too much, like the bass part, the beginning of Everybody Dance. <laughs> Niall made me play that. I was ashamed of it. I thought it was too much. The next morning, I hated it, but Niall said, keep it. I love that <laughs> idea of you know, Niall urging him to keep. He's the most extraordinary bass player. And we all love Chic. It's Chic, yeah. the most extraordinary group, in a sense, self-contained group to come out of the disco era. Do you still love them? Sure. Yeah. I mean, what those two guys had... I mean, it's like Keith and Charlie. What those two guys had is you can't find it anywhere else. You can't explain it any real way. Niall's guitar playing was always this pretty steady, I mean, he varied it occasionally, but pretty steady, unbroken, not particularly treated, usually DI into mm -hmm. the board sound, which continued but was full of these variations mostly harmonic somewhat rhythmic mm -hmm. and it left all of this space for 
Bernard to do stuff, and it would have been extremely tedious had he not. I mean, if you think of what that those records would have sounded like, if if even if it was brilliant, even if the note choices were brilliant, if the energy were were static, what would you do? And and the rest of the records were were inherently, I think, by design banal. I mean, you know, keyboard pads, the girl vocals. Yeah. Tony Thompson's excellent, strong, straight ahead, you know, not unlike Larry Mullen drumming. I mean, I always said to yeah, me, yeah. You, you two, you, early U2 was like, was basically like Cheek played in a stone room. I mean, if you think about it, except that Larry Mullen, no, Adam, I'm sorry, the bass, Adam did play sparsely, but there was room for other things to happen. I, I think the, the other great component with Chic, which no one ever talks about, is the piano on Chic stuff. And it's like architectural. There's these big block chords, which mm-hmm. absolutely set out the structure of the song. It's not a busy piano. It's pretty much what you described. You know, it's, you know on the one of the bar, he'll play a chord and let it hang. And yeah. underneath that is this bass moving away, moving away. It's And you got to give him credit, which again, this is part of the maybe the discriminatory nature of people's listening. They came up with great hooks for records, lyric hooks, yeah. idea hooks, because you dance to the lyric. I mean, there's a famous, I don't know who he said it to, but I think it was Steven Tyler who said, in the end, really, you're always fucking the face. By which he meant, it's the person, it's the face, it's not like the, the body part. It was yeah. pretty romantic from Stephen Tyler, I think. <laughs> um, <laughs> expressed in a Ty, Ty, Tylerian manner, but it, but it, but you you are dancing to the lyric a lot, and it's and it's a harder bar if there's no lyric to dance to. But if there is, if it's if the lyric is putting some kind of a tear or joy or pain in you, and Sheik did a did a great job on that. I mean, clams on the half shell and roller skates. Mm-hmm. You know, that, I mean. Yeah. It's really high level stuff. Richard, who came from a jazz background and was very into Miles and Tio Macero and all of that, immediately connected. And we both felt that what disco is doing, and it has a lot to do with Fella also, is a manipulation and a cheating of time. I mean, duration of time. And rather than having a song, which perhaps tediously goes from verse to B section to chorus to verse to bridge, in a sense, they were making records and it goes back, I think entirely to James Brown, where it was all happening at once. And yeah, it went on and on and on. And yeah, if you don't like it, you're going to think that it's boring. But if you get into it, you're just listening to all of it playing off each other and it's an endless endless back scratch by the best back scratcher on the planet <laughs> yeah. yeah i mean yeah. still yeah. i don't need anything really much more in my ears than the payback by james brown it's two guitars drums a shaker this is something yeah. else i should could, could just add in terms of my writing bias i really hated the whole american not to be unfair, but I think Paul Nelson was an example of this, of let's talk about, you know, Jackson Brown mourning his dead wife and what it did for the lyrics of the last record. 
I won't say I don't care, but I kind of don't care because I was making <laughs> because I was making music. I wanted to know how Van McCoy, speaking of kibasas, how Van McCoy mic'd the kibasa on his records because I was trying to make records. So it was all largely an excuse for me to be in the studio and watch people work and and get an apprenticeship. So I always moved toward that stuff. Now, on The Hustle, which is a great record, it's all well and good. On David Ruffin, Walk Away From Love, the stakes are a lot higher, but it's the same techniques, and they really deliver a punch. Yeah, I absolutely agree. David, we found a picture of you online that we're going to illustrate the David Sigerson feature, which is a picture okay. of you and Prince from 1996 when you were high up in the corporate record business. And Prince is holding, it's something to do with emancipation. I don't know what mm-hmm. it is. It doesn't. And so we thought we'd also chuck in your Rolling Stone review of Parade, which came out after your own two albums on Z had come out. So you were still writing, but you were in the record industry. You had written songs, you'd produced stuff. And I have to quote, I must quote this, this line from the interview I did with you, the songs on falling in love again. You said, it seems to me that this world is full of young men taking vulgar and unfair revenge for the rather small wrongs they've suffered in early life. (laughs) (laughs) and i mean that that is a sentence that would have taken me about 20 minutes to write and you just said it to me over the phone so i (laughs) i I just have to but prince if we just sort of jump forward into the next decade and that's the post-disco era you know prince i mean you start that review by saying hubert prince fills us today with the kind of anticipation that was once reserved for new work by Bob Dylan, the Beatles, and the Rolling Stones. And he was a giant figure. You got that pretty early. Was he like, did he sort of boss that decade for you? I suppose, yeah. I mean, also because of what he did. I mean, how he and Michael integrated pop music. I mean, they were the first two artists with MTV that didn't have to cross over. And that was a huge change. And he was immensely talented. I mean, you know, I'm more of a... I'm much more of a Stones guy than a Beatles guy. Just it's not, it's not a it's not a judgment. It's a it's a confession of just <laughs> no, just how we're made. The Beatles never tried to be my band, although I was crazy and obsessed with them and needed every record and needed to be left alone by my parents for five hours with a pair of headphones when every record came out. Of course, and to me, Prince is more Beatle-like than Stone-like. I never thought any less of him for it, but it didn't fully, no, I, I, I loved it. But in the end, it was not, it didn't dominate it in terms of my, my inner psychic landscape. So you were a Rick James man, as opposed to a Prince guy. I always thought Rick James has been like the Stones, the Prince's Beatles. Yeah. I think that's really, I think that's really fair. Yeah. <laughs> I love the way, I love the way you combine a, the kind of deep technical interest in music that you were talking about, kind of like, where's the mic on the kibasas, but with a deeply felt response to it. Do you ever find it difficult to reconcile those two things, the kind of technical with the feeling? No, no. I mean, they, they, they come together for me because I, I mean, I've always I think I've always wanted to do and tried to do two things, one of which is to be an, an editor 
or a journalist or a producer or a writer or work at a record company, which is all kind of variations of the same job, which is, I mean, yeah, we've all written one star reviews and had fun with that. And I got punched in the face at the four aces in Dalston for when I wrote Ooh. back in 1976. But um, <laughs> About mostly who? what it was some horrible disco or maybe reggae disco act and some big guy came up to me and said i'd been playing I said are you david sigurds i said yes he just cold cocked me right in the face wow wow and i said something i wrote and he <laughs> said <laughs> he said he said yes and i said well that's probably fair and then we went and had a couple of drinks together he was a nice guy anyway um <laughs> you've got to take your medicine well, also, <laughs> also, you go to the Four Aces of Dalston, you, you, will run anyway. out, you will run at risk anyway. I mean, one of the scariest places I've ever been to. That's yeah, sure. well, I think I was reviewing it for Time Out. I think I was there in my guise as, as disco editor with my, you know, with a white glove to check the bathroom to see if it was, you know, clean or not. <laughs> but um, I was always trying to figure out how you do it. And then I was trying to do it uh, my, for myself. Mm-hmm. And when I was trying to, write about it mostly i was trying to talk about people whose records i loved to champion them or people whose records i nearly loved and if only they could just do this one thing that i really think they you know that why why what aren't they getting about this mm. and the great thing about producing records there were acts that i passed on because i said you don't you don't need me this is mm-hmm. this is perfect and my my managers that drove them crazy and I do have some monetary regrets that I didn't. But <laughs> what am I supposed to do there? I'm not, you know, I'm not mm. Elliot Shiner. I'm not a genius engineer who's going to sit there and capture the shit. But I love the way you combine that interest because, like, we got a marvelous article on the site from Black Music where you're talking to the session guys behind a lot of disco. Mm-hmm. And it's people like Richard T, who I love. I mean, stuff are absolutely one of my favorite bands, you know. Yeah. So you're talking to these guys who no one pays the blindest bit of notice of, but you did partly because you had interest in how these records are made. Yeah. No, I wanted to I wanted to understand it. And you never know what has an effect. I mean, when I would m- make stuff, de- I developed my peripheral vision. So I wouldn't look at people when I was playing it to them, but I would mm-hmm. watch them really closely out of the corner of my eye and try and see how they reacted. And you could hire you know, a ginormous orchestra to play some huge thing or overdub 9,000 guitars for the thing coming out of the bridge. And people just sit there. One little tap of a cymbal in the right place and you Mm. can see a shiver. And Mm. so sometimes you have to mute the $8,000 string session and trust the cymbal. And if if your goal is to produce an emotional result in a listener of the kind that you love to have Uh when you're a listener of the kind that you had when you got to the artist and were moved and humbled to be in their presence, then it's all about how do how do I do that? And so it does, it does come down often to technical things or to, or to working through the lyrics and changing words in the lyrics that don't make mm. sense. And in the song Welcome to the Boomtown by David and David, and mm. David Barrel is one of my closest friends still, and we talk all the time. There's a line, I think it's co- cocaine in her dresser, marble on her floors. And it was originally carpet on her floors. And I was like, carpet? <laughs> you know, yeah. I think of like, I mean, I th- it's talk- it also talks about handsome Kevin dealing dope out of Denny's, you know, 
from a table in the back. Memories, Barney. And um, <laughs> happy, happy ones, of course. <laughs> and um, it's like I thought of all of those, you know, two-level buildings with kind of like weird yellowish carpet on the floors. I thought, what is the, what, you know, it's, what is the sociology here? What's mm-hmm. the, what's the, what's the scene that we're setting? Is she a, a rich girl living in a mansion? I'm picturing one of these apartments. There's no wrong answer, mm-hmm. but tell me. And he's like, no, she's a rich girl. So, well, then it wouldn't be carpet. That, that puts me in the wrong place. Yeah. So he got it and he changed it to marble. So you're doing that with a hi-hat part. You're doing that with a lyric. Mm-hmm. You're doing that with a vocal performance. And these are all the things that we talk about when we write both saying how extolling the perfect moment, mm-hmm. you know, the perfect, the, the succession of perfect moments in, in almost any T-Rex track. Sure. Um, that, Indeed. That, that seem and probably were casual, accidental, but they were the accidents of really gifted people. Yeah. Yes. And then Tony Visconti knowing which accidents to keep and which accidents mm-hmm. to, to discard, like Tio Macero with Miles. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So... You know, all of these skills, which mostly come down to listening and thinking about what you're listening to and how it makes you yeah. feel. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Go for all these things. And so when you see a band that does this stuff, uh, like Chic, remarkably well, or people who just consistently know how to get it right, one is an awe. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, your peak moment as a producer, at least commercially, I would assume is Eternal Flame by the Bangles, a number one hit in 1989. After that, you really went into the corporate world. You spent the most of the 90s heading up record companies. And I wonder how you look back on that time. My sense was at the end of it, you just decided to walk away from 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 that world but i've never heard you sort of sum up w- what that experience was like for you the the good yeah. parts of it and the not so good i loved every every bit of it none of it w- wasn't good okay but i produced tori amos little yeah. earthquakes yes and atlantic hated it and doug morris Ray Jason Flom hired me and Doug said, let's either be the best or the worst record ever made on Atlantic records. And he said, it's a fucking $200,000 piano demo. What's he done? And, but he knew enough not to drop her. So he sent Tori to England where the English record company fell in love with her and got her. And she spent a lot of time just playing piano and singing, which is what got me hooked in the first place. Cause I was sent to write with her because I've always been a, bit of a whore when it comes to writing and very picky when it comes to producing because as jimmy ivian once said to me about producing you are what you eat so <laughs> you know i was very careful what i what i took on that way and she played me three songs and i said i am so humbled i would not dream of attempting to write with you but if you'd like a producer i think i know what to do and so we worked together he hated the record he was going to have a reef come in and put synths and drum machines on everything. And Tori said, no, you can fuck with me, but you can't fuck with my music. And to Doug's everlasting credit, I saw him after I'd already gone into the record business and he walked across a huge room at this benefit and said, I was so wrong. You were so right. Thank you. That record has reshaped Atlantic records. Fantastic. Which it kind of did in a way because of Tori, not because of me. I just didn't, I did my part of not letting them fuck her up. Snow can wait 
So I was in such shock that they didn't get that record. And I was really only like four years into my full record producing career and it was going really well that I thought I have to be able to protect the things longer. I can't just leave the baby in the basket at the doorstep. So I thought I need to go work for a record company so I can fight for the things that people get. And I mean, the best vindication of that was D'Angelo, who was on the to-be-drop list when I got to EMI. And I called him in for a meeting, and he he and his manager said, are you dropping me? I said, no, I'm here to tell you that I'm going to bet my entire company on you, and are you ready for that? Oh. And, you know, those moments, I mean – that's why you want to do it. Yeah, yeah. That's that's like phenomenally great shit. And then it was really hard. We went four months, four months at radio with Brown Sugar before we got our first ad. Wow. And there was a big editorial in the LA Times all about the corrupt practices which I used to get played on the radio. And people were like, how do you feel about that article? I said, I think people are going to be beating a path to our door, which, <laughs> which they did. <laughs> But so the transition from producing to records was really being so upset and hurt, feeling I have to do this a bit longer. I went from my first gig, my first job was president of Polydor for like three years, but I didn't have control of everything. Then I went on to be president of CEO of EMI Chrysalis and SBK, where I did have control, which is great. D'Angelo learned a lot. Then I went back to Ireland sort of as Chris's anointed heir, which was lovely. I mean, he and I have such a checkered relationship, but <laughs> a, a great one, to be chairman of, of Ireland in the States. And two months after we did the deal, Seagram's bought the company. And, you know, history's written by the victors. There was none of this, you, you know, we're a little fish, we're swallowing the big fish, we're going to do it your way. And I just felt like, you know, what's the line? You know, tragedy repeated is farce. Uh, you know, I'd been through EMI being shut down when we were on a tremendous roll because Ken Berry won a power struggle with Jim Fifield and watching, you know, a hundred wonderful people get f- fired overnight. It it does take a bit of a, a toll on your idealism. Sure. And I understood that that's what the business was. I had done a deal with a label called Bongload Records who did Loser by Beck. Yeah. And I couldn't sign the song and I couldn't sign Beck because I had an artist on the label called Paleface who he was friends with and he didn't want to compete and honestly I mean we were competing against much bigger fish but I think I would have gotten him anyway because you can do that sometimes if it wasn't for that thing but so I signed Bongload the label two really great guys Rob Schnapp and Tom Rothrock Rothrock, went on to excellent both of them great producing careers and um, we bought a, an interest in their company, and then I left. And they were, like, stuck with this corporation that owned a big chunk of their company and didn't know what to do mm-hmm. with it. And I honestly didn't think, with all of the good things that we were doing, that I wasn't going to be there. And I felt like, God, you're so naive. What, you know, none of it matters to anybody. 
And it's okay as long as you know that. But so I felt like I've done it three times. I've had a decade of it. Mm -hmm. It's been pretty good to me. You know, timely defenestrations work wonders (laughs) for the old balance sheet. And um, it's like get on with something else. And then I also felt having, you know, done other things before – this sounds pompous, but no one ever accused me of not being pompous. Um, <laughs> do I want my obituary to be a list of names of places that I worked? You know, yeah. EMI and SBK and da 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 and sure. PLG. It's like no, there's and I'd always wanted to write fiction and other kinds of songwriting and stuff. And I thought, well, if you don't do it now, you won't. And just you got to either put up or shut up. So. So it was a moment to, to, to do that. But I loved it. I didn't miss it. There were The heartbreaks were the heartbreaks of particularly Tori and Bonglo that, that in each case moved me to the next step. But steps that I wanted to take. For the record, you wrote a really fine novel called Faithful. And I know you wrote another novel after that. Right, two more. But yeah. Two more. Okay, two more. But Faithful was, was really, really good. 2004. So I just want to say that. I mean, you're a tremendous writer. Thank you. The other two are sitting in my drawer because I do have mental and emotional issues, but I think they're pretty good too. But who knows? One day, I bet whatever. they are. No, I'm sure, I sh- I'm sure I, they are. I need to find an agent and whatever. Okay. Yeah. Where are they? Where are those agents? Yeah. So I wanted to t- just take you back in, in time to what we were talking about earlier. So where you came in, we mentioned Cliff White, and we mentioned the whole kind of funk versus disco sort of false false dialectic but at this point i thought it would be good to ask mark to tell us about the week's new audio interview yeah it's, it's uh, cliff white interviewing bootsy collins in uh, we think june 1978 it's definitely 1978 uh, and it's it's very interesting because like uh, cliff often interviews people on the basis that cliff already knows everything there is to know he actually kind of he does ask bootsy to kind of to go back to kind of the beginning. So Boots is talking about his first band in Cincinnati with his brother Phelps called the Pace Setters. And they were like, you know, a, a serious proposition in a fairly sm- small town, but the small town had to contain King Records, James Brown's label. And he talks about joining James Brown after James Brown, basically half the original JBs had walked, but I mean, it's still a, you know, it's a fantastic band. Um, He's only with James Brown for about 18 months, but that includes Cutting Sex Machine and many other great, great records. Was Say It Loud their first track together or their I'm first not sure. single I, I, together? I'm not sure. I don't, he doesn't actually say say that in this interview. Yeah. Um, definitely on Sex uh, Machine, isn't defi- he? I forget. Definitely yeah. Sex Machine. And also that marvellous pseudo live album, which is called Sex Machine kind of live, and it's actually entirely studio cuts with the dubbed-in audience, but it's fantastic, mm. fantastic stuff. He would have been in the band that I saw at the Albert Hall, I guess, in 71. That would have been Bootsy. Uh, unfortunately, for a variety of reasons, I have no memory of James Brown's set whatsoever, which is a really depressing little fact there. Anyway, uh, we'll play a clip because he, he, he also talks about how he and George and others are going to produce James Brown. I don't think it's ever happened, but let's hear, have a, listen, have a listen to this clip. One, two, three, four. Get up, get on up. Get up, get on up. Stay on the scene. Get on up. Like a sex machine. Get on up. Get you know what? You know what, he, what needs to happen? Myself, along with George and him. You know, if we, you know, like me and George and I were discussing. And it's going to happen once, you know, once he's able to, you know, to hear it. 
you know, that would be a killer, you know. Because I just, I don't feel, knowing James a little bit, I don't know him well, but I've met him a few times and I've studied his career for years. I don't see he's the kind of man to allow that to happen. But you know what? I know, I, I think I know how to let it happen. Because, you, know, you know, I don't, you know, I don't need nothing, you know. All I want to do is just to say we did it, mm. you know, and, uh, you know, he can, you know, all the rest of it he can have. <laughs> even, you know, even for, I, I would go so far as just, you know, the money side of it, you know, just to say we done it. You mm. know, it's cool enough with me, you know, because yeah. uh, the history thing is more important to me than just, you know, just to say, uh, you know, you know what I'm saying? I know so, what you're uh, saying. I respect know. that very much. There aren't very many people in the business who think in those terms. Right. You know, it's all money all the time. Right. You know? Right. Well, look he, at the continuity of the history of the music. Yeah, you know? yeah. Well, he could, you know, like I would tell him that too. You know, we haven't got to that point yet, but we've been rapping, you know, slightly on it, you know. And I think it's gonna happen. Mm. Matter of fact, with him and Sly, you know, I just left uh, Sly. What was that? This week, just fast. Oh yeah. And we rapping on that level now. Can I take him to the bridge? Take him to the bridge. I love the heard the results in producing James Brown and Sly. Unfortunately, neither thing. Yes, yes. He's very confident there's going to happen, isn't he? Funnily enough. Um, Then he goes into joining George Clinton, Funkadelic, the albums America Eats This Young and Cosmic Slop. We'll play a clip at the end about the the theft of his space base, which is highly entertaining. (laughs) Putting together the rubber band, stretching out Mothership Connection, which is fantastic. I mean, and it's, his intelligence about the whole thing is is really noticeable about Bootsy. You know, he really knows what's going on. You know, he's not distracted by the flim flam, which, which is why he's still around now, still doing really good stuff these days, you know. And he's just come out of finishing recording One Nation Under a Groove. Let's listen to this clip. It's, it's, it's really nice. just finished Funkadelic album and it's gonna come out and it's gonna blow everybody you know it's gonna blow everybody away you know as a matter of fact I just did the last drum thing last week and that was it you know for the Funkadelic album and um that's gonna blow everybody away because um they haven't had a hit you know and you know I, I mean a real hit that's you know? right but uh this one here is called uh One Nation Under Groove it's gonna it's gonna do like uh Flashlight it's gonna it's gonna be like Flashlight and more so <laughs> well, he was right about that, wasn't it. he? Sure is. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Just the fact that, you know, he just finished putting the finishing touches to One Nation Under a Groove, which surely has to be one of the, the great American dance records. Yeah. I mean, my God. Oh, man. <laughs> so that that's a lovely, lovely thing yeah. to hear. Yeah. Now, now, I mean, P-Funk, there was not a lot of snare drum. It was really all about the bass drum. And then they started adding the hand clap uh-huh. backbeat. Like Flashlight had the hand clap backbeat, whereas the earlier records were much more about the, the four on the floor. But the four on the floor, and even that it was a hand clap, not a snare, left 
more room. And again, we're back to the dynamics and not unlike chic, although in a very different mm-hmm. way that the drums left room for Bootsy to be Bootsy. Yeah. And it was funny with that weird, you know, filter he always put on his bass. In some ways it doesn't have the full depth of bass, but they also had synth bass. Yeah. So it was almost more of a lead instrument in a, in, in a that, lot of practice. The squelch, the sort of squelch yeah. filter he had. Yeah, yeah. 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 But he found a way to make that work and he was obviously playing very different things before he, he got there. Yeah. I, I have to say, I, I, I was never a huge fan of Bootsy's solo records. I mean, I understood how they fit into the empire. <laughs> and, and I loved the cartoon character that he yeah, created. Yeah. But but one of my all-time favorite songs is I'd Rather Be With You. Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. I was going to say, and, I just literally about to say, what, even I'd Rather Be and, With You? And, and I, have on, I have on one key occasion sat my wife down when she was not my biggest fan. And I said, I can't say anything to you, but just hear. I mean, she knew the song well, but I just played the song for her. And it kind of saved the and day. And you're still married. We are very much still married. <laughs> Excellent. Well, there you go. There's the power of <laughs> boots. Power of boots. Power of boots. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because, oh, because, wait, because, wait, it's, it's not just I'd rather be with you. It's also I'd rather be with you. Yes. 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 The emphasis yes. on the with. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> it's both. He does it both yeah, ways. Yeah. Take that to Sarge. So lastly, he talks about actually something I didn't know that he essentially discovered Roger Troutman. He's produced he produced Roger Troutman's first recordings, which came out under the name of mm. Roger and the Human Body. Huh. I had no idea about this. You know, and I, we yeah. are all massive Roger Troutman fans. Um, yeah. Well, Zap was also in Cincinnati. That's what, well, right? the, the, so. yes. yeah, they were Dayton, I think. But the fact is, Dayton's not far uh-huh. from Cincinnati. And I mean, I, no. I, you know, there is a book to be written about how Ohio's estate is. Is the ground zero of funk the funk stage? The, the funk yes. stage. And don't forget, and don't forget, Phase O. Riding High is one of the greatest funk right. records ever right. made. Under yeah. the wing on She Records, under the wing of the Ohio Players. Right. So, so, I mean, there you go. That's an, that's another masterpiece that stand. I have to put that on my my dead list. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm an atheist, but I suppose there's a slim chance that when they're listening to it, I might at that point be riding high. You never know. <laughs> <laughs> that's fantastic. So, oh. so yeah, the, the, you know, he he talks about the various people in the whole P funk thing. Who is Parlette? Who are the brides of Funkenstein? He talks very fondly and extensively about Bernie Worrell, who's obviously mm-hmm. a great part of that band. So yeah. it's, it's 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 terrific interviews, as usual with with dear old Cliff White's interviews. There's quite a lot of Cliff White in it, but uh, that that sort of goes with Cliff's territory. Yeah, I mean, it starts with Cliff. Obviously, he comes in with this. All this like James Stuff. Brown stuff yeah. and like puts it down in front of Bootsy, who's just like, oh man, <laughs> yeah, you know, it's like, yeah, yeah. Where did you get these? You know like... everything, man. You don't need to ask me anything. And and Cliff was like the, the almost at that point already like the world expert on James Brown. So he, so Bootsy's looking at all these pictures of himself when he was like, you know, what sixteen, <laughs> seventeen, and he's just blows his mind. Yeah. It, he's so lovely in this interview. He's just so charming and and fun in a way that he always is. I'm, I, I've seen him, heard him interviewed countless times now, and and 
Just Boots is such a sweetie. You've done some really amusing voiceover stuff on on the new Bruno Mars and some Pack Silk Sonic. Oh, I have that. I got to listen to it. Yeah, it's, mm. it's, I I really enjoy it. I mean, it's very tongue in cheek. It's very much looking looking backwards, but it is it is a good fun record. Fantastic. So yeah. Definitely check mm-hmm. it out. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, Brilliant. I have an eight month old puppy, and I spent a lot of time. I realized talking to her in Bootsy voice. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, baby Baba, let's do your thing. It's TCB, baby Baba, come on. <laughs> Fantastic. Very good. Fantastic. That's pretty good. If, if Boots is indisposed, <laughs> David, I think you can step in. Yeah. Yeah. That's very so, fun. So that's it. And we, as I said, we'll yeah. play a clip at the end of the show, which is about the theft of his space base. He also had his glasses yeah, yeah. stolen as well. You know. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, the space glasses as well. It's very funny. It's, it's yeah. Good. yeah, it's very good. You know, I love I loved the audio, and it's always good to, to digitize another of the Cliff tapes that we were bequeathed, yes. which is just yeah. a fantastic thing to, to have. So uh, more Cliff uh, coming down the line. It's time just to mention the passing of Mick Rock. And the, the feature on the homepage is actually going to be a, a based around Bowie and the Young Americans album. But So Mick Rock died about a week ago ish yeah. yeah so we have a couple of pieces about mick to pay tribute i mean this is this is the great kind of iconographer really of british glam and then of course you know new york glam and glitter rock and um and you make a little bit great character very very important part of the david bowie story which just prompts me to ask you david as as a young american growing up in early 70s britain i mean do you do those mick rock images are they kind of seared into your brain as part of a glam experience yeah (laughs) (laughs) i mean were you into were you into that were you into glam and roxy and t-rex you mentioned t-rex earlier i think i was a little late to bowie because that earlier not early. Bowie was a very it was a very brief period where he was the unbelievable Bowie. But the the his version of glam, which had less groove to it and more theater to it, I had to circle back to, and I was probably realizing that Life on Mars is just one of the greatest copyrights ever written. I mean, <laughs> just a, a phenomenal. I don't know why, why that song is not a standard that everybody covers in Vegas and anywhere else. I don't know, <laughs> but it was probably around Young Americans. Well, no, I think actually at the time I felt Young Americans was appropriation before its its time. <laughs> I mean, Luther had played a big role on that record, yeah. but there were songs like like Win and Somebody Up There Likes Me that I adored. But Station to Station and The First Side of Low were when I fell completely in love with Bowie and then went back and continued forward, although it was a little hard to continue forward with them because his moment was kind of yeah. toasted after those three records. The song on, was it Lodger? Fantastic Voyage is a great song. But they sort of thinned out after that. But we were listening. Young Americans was playing somewhere. And my wife was saying to me just the other day, God, doesn't this record make you sad? And it stopped me for a minute. And I thought, it does, in fact, because there's a, a, you know, there's an ache and a melancholy in the song and in the whole album, which is really the secret to what's so fucking great about 
young Americans, the song and the album. It's a record I love much more now than I did when it came out. Yeah, I mean, yes. I, I, I almost felt like I was kind of prejudiced against it by Bowie's own statements about Plastic Soul. So I almost heard it as Plastic Soul. And now I don't. And it was Station to Station to me was at the time a much more significant record. But yes. I can listen to Young Americans now with, with enormous pleasure. And it's really interesting to reread Ian McDonald's enemy review of the album because mm. he's been Bowie's great champion on the paper up to that point with Charles Sean Murray. And he basically says he likes it, but he's struggling to get his head around what it means that Bowie's gone to America and is recording at Sigma sound. And he's got David Sanborn playing. What, what does this mean? What's, what's Bowie doing? But I think it stands up pretty well. And, and of course, Luther's, you know, Luther's what he did on, on the title track is, is, is phenomenal. Well, yeah, he was the main collaborator on that record, and it wasn't appropriation. It was Bowie being Bowie and finding great people to work with to do it. So, no, that record just totally stands up. Yeah, and yeah. maybe not having loved it as much at the time makes it even more lovable now. So, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. We're, Obviously, we're, Mick, we're Rock, Mick Rock wasn't part of the Bowie story at that point. He 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 departed from Bowie world, but, um, you know, an incredibly important rock and roll photographer. And, um, you think about the covers of raw power transformer and the pictures he took of, of Bowie. He's, he's a great guy. I mean, a real kind of kindred spirit for Bowie. So we're saying goodbye to Mick. At this point, Marco, I'm going to ask you to talk about your favorite pieces that you've added, the most interesting pieces you've added to the library, and we can all jump in if we've got any comments. Sure, absolutely. Last week, major Elton John interview by Paul Gambaccini for Rolling Stone in 73. It's actually Elton John and Bernie Taupin. And Elton John just gives great interview. I mean, it's just, just the guy. That's just who he is. He says things like, in a couple of years' time, I'll probably look at a picture of me in platforms and say, what the hell was I doing? Well, he obviously didn't look at a picture of himself in platforms in a couple of years' time and think, what the hell he was doing? He says, I tried to commit suicide one day. It's very Woody Allen type suicide. I turned on the gas and left all the windows open. Well, yeah, that's that's classic Elton. <laughs> that's classic Elton. Brian Case on Cecil Taylor from 1973. I just love Brian Case. His writing says, on Cecil Taylor, his treble clusters wore re-entry goggles. His arpeggios moved as if he was zipping and unzipping the keyboard. Okay, Record Mirror 1977. This is Barry Kane, and, and it's basically interviews with both The Clash and Johnny Thunder's Heartbreakers. Mick Jones says things like, I'm selling off most of the records I ever bought because listening to them now is a waste of time. Joe Strummer says, Lawrence of Arabia was my great hero because I thought it was real smooth. He's just coming out of England and leading the Arabs. Okay, Joe. Uh, Johnny Thunder's in the same interviews. I want to change our name to The Junkies. It shows we're no, uh, a no-holds-barred band. <laughs> 
it, it does, says what it does on the tin, doesn't it? Uh, I wonder if that's where Rock the Cosbug came from. <laughs> well, that's, a, that's, a, that's a thought. Let me see. Yeah, um, Johnny Thunders again. All the new bands think they're going to change the world. All they're going to change is their nappies. Thank you. Very interesting. Roy Traken in for New York Rocker in 1981 interviews Tony Wilson Factory Records and Jeff Travis Rough Trade and Tony Wilson again is, does gives great interviews. He says Peter Savile makes a living in London as an art director for Roxy Music and the like. Rob Gretna has been living off his girlfriend for five years. Alan Erasmus can live on nothing because he lives in the projects. <laughs> Nicely put, Tony. He says, of course, my groups borrow money from me all the time. That's just because I'm middle class. Um, <laughs> I love the way Tony Wilson uses the word project <laughs> because he's being interviewed by In America, an American yeah, journalist. Yeah. I, I've, I've, I didn't know the word project as such in Manchester. <laughs> Lastly, from last week, uh, Sam Sutherland, big interview with Randy Newman. Randy Newman talking about the guys who play on his records and why he doesn't let them stretch out. And he says, I'm not one to allow people freedom to just groove. I don't like to hear a guy take off and do his own thing on my record which I think is actually pretty cool. You know, no, you're not going to play solos on my, my shit. And, you know, good for him. Paul Simon should have read that for a few of his records. <laughs> <laughs> and then, then, then Randy says, when you actually meet the confessional type songwriter who sings about himself all the time, he's not like what he writes. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if Dan Fogelberg was some kind of Nazi. I'm not saying he is, but you can't know he's a decent, sensitive, mellow fella just on the basis of what he writes. I guarantee it. I've met too many of those guys, and some of them are barracudas. You can tell more about what I'm like from my stuff than you can from a lot of those guys who just sing me, me, me all the time, which I think is fantastic. Yeah. yeah. I remember yeah. Randy saying the same thing to me, and I thought it was a really interesting point, that that idea that the confessional singer-songwriters were just opening up their souls in some completely transparent way. <laughs> uh, you really have to question that, don't you? And actually, Randy's lyrics probably do say more about him than certainly, I don't know, Neil Young's lyrics say about Neil Young. I think it's a very valid point. Yeah. Where, where do you stand on confessional singer-songwriting, David, having written some quite confessional singer-songwriter songs yourself? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah? I, don't, I, don't, I don't take a view because I think – I mean, I think Randy Yu would be the first to say that he reveals a lot of himself in his songs. And I think that it's a pretty natural progression also when you feel like you've exhausted yourself as a topic to continue talking about yourself <laughs> in the guise of talking <laughs> about other people. Anything that, you know, refreshes the old well. So I think that the bar is higher with with a confessional song to merit other people listening to it. But the good ones always, you know, meet that. And a lot of people, I mean, listen, Dylan most prominently is always playing on that line, cheating that line. Is Blood on the Tracks a conf more confessional record than Bringing It All Back Home? Of course not. I mean, mm -hmm. they both reveal and they both obscure because Dylan is, you know, Dylan. Very good at both of those. <laughs> and and very good at playing with our expectations of what it is he's doing in a way to more deeply fascinate us. Yeah, yeah maybe more so than Dan Fogelberg. <laughs> Le oh. Less than about Paul Fogelberg better. <laughs> this week, going in this week, is uh, 
Well, this is great. It's Maureen Cleave for the Evening Standard in 1964, interviewing Sister Rosetta Tharp, who was visiting England. That you can still see but find them on YouTube, her playing in some sort of railway disused railway station yep. from wow. that, that time. And she's great. She says, when people receive me, they feel cold chills all over them. They cry. They love it. It makes them feel good, like they're not dead. <laughs> Which is good to know. It's and she great. says, in nightclubs, you get souls, and there's many devils in church, baby. Which I, I think. Fabulous. That just reminded me, I've been thinking since I mentioned David Ruffin before. Mm-hmm. Have you guys seen Summer of Soul? Yes. Yeah. yeah, loved it. I mean, he's extraordinary. And then Rosetta Tharp re-reminded me because of all the Mavis and Mahalia yes. stuff. Yeah. yeah. What a yeah. Great I, 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 we absolutely loved it. We, 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 we had, who was his guest we had? His uh, dad, Miles, Miles Marshall Lewis. Lewis. Miles Marshall yeah. Lewis's dad was in it. And he's the guy who says, I was a suit and tie guy until I saw Sly and the Family Stone. Well, that's Miles Marshall Lewis's dad, which we just love. Also going in this week, Robert Shelton saw Otis Redding playing the Rheingold Music Festival in Central Park in 1966, August 66. He says, Otis Redding, one of the more volcanic rhythm and blues stars, erupted in two concerts last night at the Rheingold Central Park Music Festival. The muscular, handsome 25-year-old singer from Macon, Georgia, has enjoyed a sparring reputation in recent months as a soul singer of uncommon power, whether soul be defined as involvement, as sincerity, or as the ability to stir audiences, Mr. Redding qualifies. Hmm. Which is Mr. Redding. Mr. Redding. Well, yeah, it's Mr. York, Redding to you. It's New York Times, it has to be yeah, Mr. Exactly. Redding, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Noel yeah. Redding being interviewed by Richard York. Oh, another Redding. Yeah, another Redding uh, about Jimi Hendrix. Uh, Noel Redding's a miserable sod of the first order. Jimi is a very good guitarist, but he was very hard to work with. I think he suffers from a split personality. The problem with Mitch and Jimmy too is that they can never they never saved any money. As fast as they got it, it was spent. Oh God, you just feel the air going out of the room when Noel Redding is sort of around. Mm. Well, I mean that's pretty. I mean Vivian Stanchel's Rob Partridge in seventy one. Right now, I need a much more flexible approach. The stuff I've written needs a choir, nuns, and a trained mandrills. <laughs> I love the trained mandrills, vintage Stanchel. <laughs> so that's my lot. What about you guys? I'm only going to mention a quote from uh, a long piece uh, about Terry Southern uh, by Victor Bocris from 2000 mm-hmm. for Gadfly magazine. It's just, it's just really interesting because uh, Southern was obviously not a, he was not a you know rock and roll star, but he was very tapped into the world of the counterculture. Obviously, he wrote screenplay for like Easy Rider, and he was pretty close with the Stones and people like that. You, you never encountered, or uh, do you have any take on Terry Southern, David? I mean, I, you know, a, an important name of the. Mm of the time mm. it's an interesting piece i mean it's it's yeah. a long piece he goes and has dinner with him and you know i i, I think he belongs in rock's back pages because he was he was you know he, he was so tied in with the counterculture and yeah and he wrote candy you know he wrote easy ride he wrote the screenplay for dr strange love so anyway that was the most interesting thing that i added i'll 
hand over to Jasper at that, at that point. Thanks, Barney. I'll just mention a few things briefly, first of which is an interview with Amy Winehouse from 2006, and 2006 by Sophie Hayward in The Times. I think Sophie's a writer that we recently got on board, so it's great to add her stuff. And this is actually a pretty sad piece. The headline is, She's Class with a Glass, and the stand first is, Cockney Chanteurs, Amy Winehouse thinks rehab is for wimps. But will her battles with her addictive personality deprive her of her rightful place in musical history? And, you know, it, in a way, she did, did earn a place in musical history. The article goes on to talk about she's about to release a second album so good that it could win her a place in music history, produced partly by Mark Ronson, et cetera, et cetera. Of course, Back to Black, huge album, uh, incredible album. But uh, it's, it's, it's very sad to read. I mean, she's talking a lot about, you know, drinking and a lot about... I have a really good time some nights, but then I push it over the edge and ruin my boyfriend's night. I'm an ugly dickhead drunk. I really am. And it's just, you know, it would be funny if it weren't so sad, basically. Yeah, yeah. So I have a bone to pick here. I love Amy Winehouse, love all those records, love Frank. And my bone is not with anything with Amy, but they always mention Mark Ronson. Yeah, yeah. No offense to and Mark they never Ronson. never Salam Remy. Yeah. Exactly. Who produced half of the repertoire yeah. more if you count Frank. Yeah. Um, yeah. Salam is an amazing talent. He produced the Fugees. Yeah. Yeah, I yeah. gave him his first gig. He produced a rap back, an album by a group called Jiggy for me at Polydor when he was 17. Wow. And I've known wow. him and his dad ever since. I mean, he is an amazing, amazing really talent. And it is, is it PR or racism? I don't know. That people never mention. It's always partly produced yeah. by Mark Ronson or produced yeah. by Mark Ronson. It's yes. like, let's correct that. Let's start uh, correcting that right here. You're spot on. You're spot on. It's great. So I think that is, it is Mark Ronson's PR. He's P- Mark, the one thing Mark Ronson can do is great PR for And good for him. Well, absolutely. But also overlooks Amy's contribution because yeah. she, she wrote those songs. You, you yeah. know, and it's like, no, it's a it's a it's a producer's creation. It is not a producer's creation. It's an artist's creation, helped by two very good producers. You know, yeah. but 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 uh, you know, it just makes yeah. me pretty angry. That yeah, I, yeah. I, in yeah, this, yeah, in the states, I don't know how it is there. I don't think that people would view her as a producer's creation because in the tradition of America's love of confessional singer songwriters, you know, the fact that she lived it mm-hmm. and wrote it validates the fact that she wrote it so i think yeah, most sure. people here think of her do think of her as completely the auteur of that stuff. Auteur, for sure yeah, i think yeah. so i agree yeah but but let's get salam back yeah, to where yeah, yeah. Well, no, i think yeah when we've talked about amy in the past that's it's been always a topic that we talk about and you know is it racism or is it pr it's sometimes difficult to draw the line but it's very important to to mention so thanks yeah. for bringing that in next thing is cameron carpenter rhinestone cowboy cameron carpenter is a kind of you know basically classical organist but i just found this profile by edward helmore in the guardian very funny he may wear crystal studded boots and greet every member of his audience as they arrive a way to break down barriers he says he learned from new york drag queen slave mother sabrina but his behavior is barely comparable to the excesses of say liberace Comparing me to Liberace is like comparing a little hut in the woods to the Empire State Building, he points out. <laughs> but he, he, he goes into, I mean, he wants to do more kind of popular music as well. But he has this great dilemma, and this is true when he plays classical too, but every time he goes to a new venue, he has to 
get to grips with a new organ. So he has his team build him a new organ, which he can take with him, codenamed Excalibur, because it can be, you know, it can be dismantled for travel. It's very funny, but it's going to let him do all this stuff he's talking about. And he says, I want a relationship with an instrument that I practice on every day, like a violinist with his violin, not a relationship that's basically like having a one night stand in front of 3,200 pairs of inquiring eyes. Like, Chuck Berry and every band. Not like that. <laughs> not, not like that. By the way, can we just have a moment of love for Edward Helmore? Absolutely. Yep. Yep. Love, and I love are, Edward. Yeah, we're, yeah we're, he's, a, he's, he's a, a good friend of friend. both of ours. Yeah. yeah and I a, mean, when, 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 when Barney and I were in New York, in fact, it's when we, we met you as well, David, but um, we were staying at Edward's apartment and I was the only drinker amongst them. So I'd gone out to the liquor store and got myself a bottle of Jack. And uh, I, I said to Edward, have you got any ice? And he said, yeah, look in the freezer. I opened the freezer and all his bills from the previous three years, his, his charge, his, his gas, his electricity, were all in the freezer of his fridge. I thought it was just fantastic. That's you, know, you, you get a letter with a window in the, in the envelope, you stick mm-hmm. it in your freezer. Yeah. <laughs> that was fantastic. Did, he explain, did Edward explain why? Uh, no, I they, had just, to, they had to be chilled. It's just yeah. a disinclination <laughs> to pay them, I suspect. Was there any actual ice in there alongside? <laughs> the, yeah, the, yeah, underneath all this paperwork, okay. there was a tray of ice. <laughs> and, and I'm just going to jump in one more time. Uh, while we're saying loving things, people, for, that you went through, I didn't get to say how much I... I love and how much I learned from Jeff Travis, yeah. who has turned me on to as much great music that I didn't know about, even though I hate a lot of what he likes. I also <laughs> love a lot of what he yeah. likes yeah. as anyone. And Elton, who I think is a great person, but is of all the artists I've ever met, the most listening of any of them. Ah. I mean, he hears everything. He knows everything. He always had to have every new album release, every new mm-hmm. single release, still to this day. And he will talk about artists, champion artists, in a way that no other superstar I've ever come across does. So yeah. I admire him much more as a fan and real like connoisseur of great music than than I do as a as a songwriter, singer songwriter. Mm. I have to say, I admire he, him he, as both. And I just want to say, I think Mark, you were referring to Bernie as Topin, rhyming with Chopin. It, it, I think he will love that if he hears that. Yeah, it's, it's, well, it's a classic well, Pringle well, pronunciation. Well, we've got the, a collection the, of them. The yeah. reason is, I am actually half French. Well, re- <laughs> sort of related to the family. <laughs> my, my uncle is married to Topin. And oh. they're a French family, and they do not pronounce it Torpin. <laughs> I'm sure they don't. Right. Yeah. I like the idea of, okay, Frederick are you, are you Chopin also, is are you what also I'm related say, to. Huh? Are you also related to the Dauphin, is my question. <laughs> well, quite. <laughs> I saw it in your bearing. I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> on, on, onward onward ho. <laughs> just to round things off, I will just mention a long review that I added just just for you this week, David, to tie in with everything that's going on, which is a review of the of Tom Moulton's disco remixes, John Doran in the Quietus. Zing went the strings. And he's just reviewing these these massive box sets that got released in mm-hmm. 2013, mm-hmm. kind of summing up all this well, stuff. Great. And it's it's a nice piece. It's a great, you know, great review of kind of in-depth stuff about he says he had to excise a description of the extended version of Love Train by the OJs as being like a deep bath. 
<laughs> which is very funny. We're down to the final lather. Just relax. There's a foamy bit on your shoulder. Let's make it even more frothy with a squirt of light lemon liquid. This hilarious bit of writing that By the way, John Dora are, puts in there. Are we all familiar with Bunny Sigler's version of Love Train? Oh, yes. Yeah, I am. Certainly. You, yeah. Okay. Good. <laughs> <laughs> what it, a masterpiece! It? What yeah, a yeah, masterpiece! Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. That's my lot. That's a perfect way to end a great episode. Thank you, Jasper. And thank you, David, for being our very, very special guest for the last hour plus. It's been an absolute delight speaking with you about all the things we've addressed today. Just to mention, you had told us before we started recording about some demo recordings. Would you just tell us what that's about? I would love to. Oh, good. (laughs) (laughs) It would warm my heart. Um, like a like a deep like a deep and foamy bath. Yeah. Um, <laughs> an engineer I worked a lot with in the '80s when I was doing my stuff and also producing and also being a songwriter for hire said we should drag drag out a bunch of these old demos and remaster them, which was very helpful. A lot of them were on cassette, mm-hmm. and um, so very much for friends and family. But perhaps it is more if anyone cares. I mean kind of don't but it's fun to do (laughs) um i'm putting a bunch of stuff up on the streaming services probably about 50 songs and i will put them i will try and titrate them to not drown or annoy people but they will be coming soon and rocks back pages will will know about it and um i hope you like them fantastic if i were embarrassed if i were embarrassed i wouldn't do it Sure. That's as much as I will say in their favor. (laughs) (laughs) Great stuff. I call my baby Cobalt Cause her eyes are so blue I just wanted to mention this. There's a song that uh, really jumped out from uh, my memory banks when I played, I think it's your first solo album on Spotify. Is it called I'll Never Fall in Love? I Never Fall in Love, yeah. I Never never Fall in Love. And um, do you know what? That that stands up really well after all these years. It's a really, really pretty song. It was a hit in Brazil. It was my only hit. You were briefly a superstar in Brazil, weren't you? I was a brief pop star in Brazil against against Chris Blackwell's wishes, who felt that all of my work should be anti-promoted. It was part of it was part of his fatherly expression of love for me, wow. or maybe um, Edge once mentioned that he he and the band reckoned that Chris had like a very pronounced Munchausen complex, which I think is a good perception of Chris's love. I love Chris, but anyway, the local promotion guy chose to promote my song rather than Johnny and Mary by Robert Palmer. Really. And it became a big hit and was in one of their telenovelas. And I was spent a week down there and was on the telenovela, lip syncing it. I mean, and it was great because I had a one-week window. It was like a Forsyth movie. I had a one-week window of pop stardom. I mean, girls trying to break into the room and all of that. I've completely wasted the opportunities. Um, <laughs> completely. What a fool was I. I was, I was on month 45 of a 49-month relationship. Stupid. <laughs> anyway, so I got to experience it and decide, yeah, this, nah, this, 
this doesn't do anything it's not for, for me. me. So, not okay. for me. <laughs> yeah. But it was fun. And yes, it's a, I think I'm really proud of that song. It's a good tune. It's a pretty, it's a beautiful song, actually. So, well, listen, that brings us to the end of the episode. Uh, it remains only for us all to thank you for being with us, David. And for Mark, just to talk us out with the third and final Bootsy clip. Yeah, it's just Bootsy talking about the theft of the space base. <laughs> Great way Good to stuff. end. <laughs> Thank you, gentlemen. Such so fun. great to have you. Thank you so much. Fun. Bye, everyone. See you Bye. in a couple of weeks. Bye. Hallelujah. They call me Casper. Not the friendly ghost, but the Holy Ghost. What had happened with that was my space face got stole. Oh, really? Yeah, in Chicago. And, uh, you know, I had to, um, so what I had to do was buy, um, you know, a fender, you know, and, and, you know, I felt kind of crazy though, you know, cause that was, you know, that was like 75% of the show. Yeah. You know, the space glazes and the glasses, you know, without that, you know, wow, you know, here I am starting a brand new thing without, you know, my space base, you know, and plus my glasses got stolen one time. You know, yeah. you know, that was the trip, you know, I had to head trip through that, you know, cause that was at that time, that's what the people wanted to see. Yeah. I'm here to the one who knows what the funk's about, y'all. That was Bootsy Collins in conversation with Cliff White in 1978, concluding this week's Rocks Back Pages podcast. Many thanks to special guest David Sigerson, whose remastered demos are coming soon to a streaming service near you. The hosts were Barney Hoskins and Mark Pringle, and it was co-hosted and produced by Jasper Muris and Bowie. The Rocks Back Pages podcast is part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. You can find thousands of articles, as well as hundreds of full-length audio interviews at rocksbackpages.com. Shut up.